Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell The cook in the lunchroom's ready to sell Fortunate if you have time to eat Back in the classroom, open your books She but the teacher don't know how mean she looks Soon as three o'clock rolls around You finally lay your burden down Close up your books, get out of your seat everyone. My name is Laini Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM, where we focus on issues affecting schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. We've been preempted for the last two months or so, first by the attempt by Pacifica to halt all local programming and then by the impeachment hearings for the last two weeks. But now we're here to stay every Wednesday at 10 a.m., barring any more unforeseen circumstances. Next week, we'll be hosting famed historian and advocate Diane Ravitch, author of a new book, Slaying Goliath, about the resistance to corporate education reform. But during the next hour or so, we'll be talking to Naftuli Moster, founder of YAFED, which stands for Young Advocates for Fair Education, about his organization's multi-year battle to try to ensure that ultra-Orthodox schools provide a minimally adequate education to their students. Naftuli is one of the most effective and courageous education activists out there, and he has a fascinating and important story to tell. Naftuli, are you there? Yes. Thank you so much, Lainey, for having me. Well, so welcome to the show. We're thrilled that you're here. Uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this fight? Sure. So um, I grew up in Borough Park. Uh, that's a section in of Brooklyn, uh, Hasidic community, and I am the middle child of 17 kids. I belong to a Hasidic sect called Bells. My entire life, I went to Bells. Hasidic yeshivas, um, and then at around the age of 20, without really much prior exposure to it, I developed an interest in pursuing a degree in psychology, or rather to become a psychologist. And um, I was immediately struck by the little information that I have in order to pursue one. Um, and I, you know, I walked into a local college, and I basically proclaimed without knowing any of the kind of terminology or anything just you know hey i want to become a psychologist and um, this was a school that's actually geared to orthodox jews but perhaps not to hasidic jews um so the the it's segregated you know by by gender and um taught usually by by orthodox people um so but it became clear that even there i was kind of like that it wasn't a good fit I, I didn't understand any of the words on the signs of the walls i didn't understand what people were telling me and sure enough most importantly i simply didn't have the credentials to even start pursuing a degree i didn't have a high school diploma nor did i know what that was in fact i had always been under the impression that i didn't go to high school i went to yeshiva 
because we never refer to it as high school. Um, and and so sure enough, like I said, no high school diploma. I didn't know what a GED is or how to obtain one. Um, and is they, it true that you didn't really speak English that well either? Is that right? Yes, yes, of course. At that point, my English was so poor, um, you know, so basic words, just, you know, I totally didn't understand it. So um, one of the things, one of the ways they wanted to get me into school was um, to, to do a placement exam. It consists of a basic, um, you know, writing an essay in English, of course, and doing an easy math exam. Um, I couldn't do either. I couldn't do the basic math, and I didn't know what an essay was, let alone how to actually write one, meaning I didn't know what the word essay was. I had never heard it before and never had to actually write one. In fact, I want to give you another little anecdote. Um, One of the prompts for the essay was something that's actually very Jewish, and in theory I should have known it, because growing up we did get a lot of Jewish studies. So the the prompt was about the exodus of the Jews from Egypt, and I had never heard the word exodus in my life at that point, at the age of 20. So you could see that, you know, my education was really poor. So this is kind of like my first encounter. was, was, Was your education in Yiddish? Is that right? I mean, I'm about I'm about to get to that, okay, Lainey. Um, so this was this was my first encounter with my, you know, poor education. Up until that mm-hmm. point, I genuinely did not know what's happening on the outside, um, and this was kind of like when I realized, whoa, maybe I, I didn't get a great education. So. Um, it took me so I did end up getting into college and you know really struggling through uh basic things I had to t- take english you know remedial english courses um math courses and things like that and I had delayed all the difficult things like intro to biology till the very end and it was really then when I finally took it that I decided you know what let me do do some research about my education what what I would have what, what I was supposed to receive versus what I actually received, and so forth. So um, I began doing some research, and I discovered that, lo and behold, my education was pretty much in violation of the law. So what what was my education like? Um, growing up in elementary and middle school in a Hasidic all-boys school, we received a maximum of 90 minutes of secular education four days a week, at the very end of the school day from approximately 3.30 to 5 p.m. I say a maximum of 90 minutes uh, because it varies by grade level, so younger grades get less. Um, And also because oftentimes secular education, because of the way it is presented as the less important um, or non-important part of the day, it's also, you know, the first thing to kind of like go out the window. For instance, we're approaching the holiday of Hanukkah, um, on those days, you know, yeshivas are open. They do teach Jewish studies, but the thing that gets, you know, kind of cut is the last thing in the day, the, less, the least important part, and that is the secular education. Same thing if someone has a bar mitzvah, a wedding, a sheva brachas, um, all these things which happen in the evening, usually, you know, the boy would leave right as secular studies begins because, again, that's always been viewed as the non-important uh, part. So the secular education, when it existed, consisted of just basic English and arithmetic. Much of it was taught in Yiddish. And yes, as you pointed out before, the rest of the school day was certainly, uh, everything was taught in Yiddish. Some of the Jewish texts are in Hebrew or, or kind of like ancient Aramaic, I think. But it's translated in the, in the language that the boys actually speak, which is Yiddish. And 
same as with secular education. Because the boys barely speak um, English, it's often the case that the even the English teachers have to teach secular education in in Yiddish or mostly Yiddish. Um, so this is all in elementary and middle school. Then as we entered high school, um, we and it also coincides with um, being bar mitzvah at the age of 13, we would get cut off completely from secular education. Instead, our school days got longer. Uh, we would attend yeshiva from as early as 6.30 or 7 a.m., and it would go to easily 8.30 or 9 p.m., and we would study exclusively Judaic studies, and such things like Torah, Talmud, Halacha, which is Jewish law, and Hasidic philosophy, um, all of it, again, taught in Yiddish. Um, we didn't learn a single word of, of secular education, and by that I mean even things like English or math, let alone science or social studies or anything else. So this is what my school day was like, but it, it wasn't just mine. This is, in fact, the case for tens of thousands of children currently attending yeshivas across uh, New York City, particularly Hasidic boys' schools, but it's it's kind of like ex- expanding to non-Hasidic but ultra-Orthodox boys' schools. Um, so this is happening in New York City in places like Borough Park, Williamsburg, and Crown Heights, as well as in other parts of the state like in Rockland County, Muncie, New Square, uh, Kayser, and then in Orange County like Curious Joe, and a few other pockets across uh, New York State. Right. Uh, one of the reasons this is such an important issue Um, I did a little bit of research. The ultra-Orthodox community is the fastest-growing population in the city and the state. As of 2012, 40% of the Jews in the city identify themselves as Orthodox, an increase from 33% in 2002. And so this this is a very, very fast-growing population. It represents thousands and thousands of kids. And um, it's really quite striking that their education does not include what most people would consider the basics. Can you talk yes. a little bit about the, the, the substantial equivalency law? Absolutely. And, and this is what was so astonishing when I finally discovered them. Uh, clearly, it's not something that most people knew about until just a few years ago when we brought it to their attention. But it all started when, you know, when I was in my intro to biology course, at that point I had transferred to a regular secular school and I was surrounded by public school kids. And this wasn't a top school. So these were regular average public school graduates and we're learning what a molecule is, what a, what a, um, you know, a cell is and so forth, biodiversity, photosynthesis. And for the rest of the class, this was like a refresher of what they've already learned either in middle school or in high school. To me, this was all brand new. And and it occurred to me that despite having been kind of in secular environments in college, uh, I'm still struggling even after several years. It occurred to me that this is, this is a serious harm, long-term harm that was done. And I began kind of researching what, you know, educational neglect. I thought this was like a term that hasn't yet been coined, and I would be the one to coin it. And I was surprised to learn that it does exist. And then I did some more research and asked around. A reporter told me, a Jewish reporter told me about um, the law. And that was the first time I encountered substantial equivalency. And this was, uh, you know, maybe at the age of 24 or 5. And I was I was shocked because... There's the law, then there were regulations and guidelines. The guidelines, which are kind of like made for most people like us, it's it, it was as clear, as crystal clear as it gets. It explained why 
even non-public school kids need to get a proper education, right, because the benefit of society. Um, it, exp- it, it kind of went into detail what it means to be substantially equivalent. So it was done in the Q&A format, and this is still available online. It said, what must non-public schools teach? And then it listed, it broke it down by grades 1 to 6, then 7 and 8, and then high school. And in each of them, it listed about, I don't know, 10 different subjects. And I was just shocked to see, you know, that list versus what I had received in elementary and middle school, maybe two of those subjects, and then in high school, none of the required subjects. And, and I was wondering, how, how is this possible? So that's when kind of, you know, we, we organized and brought some, you know, people together. Actually, let, let me take a step back to, to explain to the listeners why substantial equivalency exists. So many years ago, as as uh, compulsory education became a thing, it was spreading throughout the country. As you might know, it was done in part to uh, stop uh, child labor at the time. Um, some states felt that it should be required of all children to go to public schools specifically. And that was kind of like a new battlefront where some people, you know, religious schools, mostly Catholic at the time, said, no, they want to be able to send to private schools. And the courts agreed with that, but said, even though it's true that a parent can choose to send their kid to a private school, the state still has the right to implement uh, minimum standards. And that's where substantial equivalency came about. And this is this exists in many states, I believe, in half of the states across the country. Um in the past, I don't think anyone would have questioned what substantial equivalency means. It's pretty clear. What they're saying is, look, we can offer you a public school education, or if you want, you can get an education that is at least substantially equivalent in your private school. That would mean at least the same subjects, at least for a similar amount of time um, and with similar rigor, but you can go above and beyond from that. Um, so that's kind of like where the law came about. When we discovered it, I began organizing some, you know, yeshiva graduates and parents, and, um, you know, we complained to city officials, and they sent us to the state, and then the state sent us back to the city. This is kind of how it all started in 2012. But in 2015, we filed a formal complaint. This one was, you know, done at the time with um, civil rights attorney Norman Siegel, from uh, formerly with the NYCLU, and... We, we, it was signed by 52 yeshiva graduates and parents, and it listed 39 yeshivas, uh, which between the 52 of us, we had either attended or had children attending at the time, one of these 39 schools. 38 of them were in Brooklyn, one in Queens, also belonging to a Brooklyn community, just was a little bit over the border. And we alleged that in those 39 schools, uh, at least in those 39 schools, they're not meeting the minimum requirements. Um, this came after we had filed previous complaints, but they weren't as as thorough. And uh, so finally, the day later, so this was, we filed the complaint in July 27. The following day, on the 28th, the city told reporters that they're launching an investigation. Okay, can we um, backtrack just a second? Because sure. some people would argue that um, private schools... Um, do not receive public money and therefore should not be regulated by the government. Um, can you talk a little bit about whether that's really true with yeshivas? That's a great question. I want to respond to that um, in two prongs. One, we believe that it, it should be illegal, and it is in fact illegal, to deny kids an education regardless of whether a school receives funding from the government mm-hmm. because 
we live in a society where uh, minimum expectation of of a basic education is expected uh, just to survive, to get around. Um, and and it would be un, uh, unacceptable to truly cripple kids like that by denying them that basic education. And and I'm happy to provide some more details, examples soon of how profound this educational neglect can, can look like. But um, another answer I want to provide is that that's also a misconception. These private schools receive lots of money from the government. Um, yes, they're not, they don't, they're not fully covered in the way that a public school would be covered, but through, indirectly through, I guess, loopholes over the years, they've managed to obtain a lot of funding. Um, but instead of funding the school as a whole, uh, which could be an, a constitutional um, challenge, they receive funding for specific programs, often programs that are required by the state. So to give you an example, um, attendance taking. Every yeshiva, or most yeshivas as far as I know, get money to simply to take attendance because the state requires schools to take attendance. Uh, similarly, yeshivas receive money to keep um, records of, of immunization, immunization records, and they receive money just to, to maintain those records. Similarly, they receive money for busing, um, lunch, um, Title One, Title Three. So this is a mix of federal and state programs, of course. And special um, and education so services, textbooks, yes, special education that textbooks to... exactly. Yeah. So there, there's a lot. There's technology. Um, there's of course security, um, busing. If I didn't mention it, mm-hmm. um, so those are actually quite known. Um, People could still argue this This still makes up a small portion of a yeshiva's budget. Um, it doesn't, but let me just add one more that a lot of people are not aware of. Many of the yeshivas that, were, you know, that are in question here actually receive more money through a voucher program. Again, most people, most New Yorkers assume that vouchers is a thing that was tried to bring in, you know, to... to happen here in New York State, but but they didn't succeed, you know, because this is, after all, a progressive state. Um, but but there are vouchers. They're just called child care vouchers or after-school vouchers. I mean, they're both, and often some of which disproportionately benefit um, ultra-Orthodox and Hasidic families. So uh, it's designed to, to help parents go, you know, I think, go to work um, and therefore to be able to send their kid to a child care provider. Only these are school-aged children, so the provider just so happens to be a yeshiva. So I had um, always is- I'd have heard about these child care vouchers before and also that the Orthodox community got a disproportionate share of these vouchers um, in New York City in part because of their political influence. But what I hadn't realized until I talked to you about this uh, yesterday was that they're available for yeshivas because they're available for kids up to the age of 12. And I had thought that was basically daycare centers or pre-Ks, and, and I hadn't realized that they were also going to essentially elementary and middle school um, yeshivas. Is that right? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I have to look up the details because, um, again, there are two, at least two, I believe, mm-hmm. the after school and the child care. Um, if I remember correctly, at least one of them goes um, through 12 or maybe even 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and either way, as you know, the Hasidic population has a very young population, so it could be younger. And, um, the, you know, there's a study that was done by the new school. Um, which you know demonstrated that there's a you know a high 
disproportionate number of these um, vouchers going to Hasidic yeshivas, at least two of which are, you know, on the list of totally failing um, as per plane. So, for instance, there's Central UTA, Central United Talmudical Academy, and then there's United Talmudical Academy. Both are Stotmer, you know, yeshivas, and they receive a huge portion of these. Um, in some way, they've actually been kind of tailor-made for ultra-Orthodox families. Uh, I don't remember the specific criteria, um, but it was done in a way where it uh, disproportionately benefits this community. Now, as you know, I don't have, you know, my priority is not, doesn't fully align with yours. As far as I'm concerned, uh, we're not here to say um, private schools should not receive government funding. Um, as far as we're concerned, that's not, it's not a discussion we're, we're engaging in. Um, our issue is only when schools that do receive government funding, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in government funding, with the assumption that they are in fact the school, and not just a building where kids congregate during the day. It, they're supposed to be a school, a school that meets the basic requirement, the basic definition of a school, which is to provide an education that is at least substantially equivalent. Teach them English, math, science, social studies, and then, you know, we could talk about funding. But to have schools or, or, or institutions that don't provide that kind of education and receive so much funding, I think that's deeply problematic. So what happened after you filed um, your legal complaint? Um, what, what, was the, what was the result? So we thought it was a breakthrough. New York City was finally, you know, not able to ignore it, and they are launching an investigation. We figured how long can an investigation into something so obvious take? Um, we figured, what, uh, six months, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, a year tops? And in fact, um, later that year, in December of 2015, the New York City Department of Education, then General Counsel, um, Courtney Jackson Chase, had told us that that spring, which means in 2016, there would be a report out. And, you know, we thought, okay, a report, but then hopefully immediately after they'll remedy the issue. Anyway, that came and went, and there was no report. In fact, Chancellor Farina at the time also told, uh, you know, uh, under oath at a hearing to, to then Chair of Education Committee Daniel Drum also that, uh, that a report is coming out soon, I think in a month or so, and that never happened. So 2016, no report, and then um, so late in 2017, New York State Education Department um, announced that they are revising the guidelines to enforce substantial equivalency. My understanding of it was that even though the guidelines have been clear about what is expected of local uh, of yeshiva of non-public schools in general and and of the local districts in terms of enforcing it, it wasn't crystal clear enough to the in a sense where it still kind of um, lent itself to political. Um, entanglements. So, for instance, you take a city like New York City, where the mayor is, uh, you know, pandering to ultra-Orthodox leaders, um, it's easy to kind of argue that, oh, they don't know how to enforce it, or they're doing it, they're doing it. There was no timeline, there were no benchmarks, and my sense is the state wanted to take the politics out of it and to streamline it, to make it more automatic. Mm -hmm. um, so they worked on revising the guidelines. When the yeshiva leaders got wind of it, and one way they got not only wind of it, but I believe they actually saw drafts of the guidelines was because they have a there's a special committee 
at the state education department level for non-public schools. You won't find it anywhere on the website. I had to foil SED to, to receive a list of them, um, and they have no minutes. I foiled that, and they don't have that. Um, but that's a committee that basically has kind of direct access to the commissioner, and they were able to see these proposed um, guidelines at the time. Um, the rest of the committee members, all non-public school representatives um, from the Catholic schools, Muslim schools, Jewish schools, and other private school interests, and they got so they got wind of it, and that's when the yeshivas pulled the Simcha Felder stunt. So in, uh, by the budget in 2018, as many of you, of your listeners would know, um, Simcha Felder basically held up the budget. He was at the time um, the key vote, right? He was, um, you know, elected Democrat, caucus with Republicans, and gave them the majority. So he held up the entire budget as long as he doesn't get what he wants. And what he wanted was an exemption for yeshivas to not have to meet substantial equivalency. Um, after back and, after some back and forth, ultimately they came up with some language which at least was supposed to do what he was hoping, which is they included certain criteria where certain schools um, would have a different definition or, or a different standard for substantial equivalency. And without using the word yeshivas, it limited it to yeshivas by using certain descriptions that only apply to ultra-Orthodox yeshivas, such as um, that they're supposed to be non-profit, bilingual, um, and that they are in school for a certain number of hours. And then the law literally went into breakdown the in three categories, you know, for elementary school, middle school, and high school. Um, so it limited it to those yeshivas. And then what would substantial equivalency mean in those yeshivas is that the state would look at four subjects, I believe English, math, science, and history, and the rest of it is should should kind of like be based on their critical thinking or academic rigor or something like that. This was all code for Talmud because yeshiva leaders have been pushing the notion that Talmud um, fosters critical thinking. And then when it got to high school, the law didn't specify any secular studies except the critical thinking component. That being said, what the law did leave in place was the words substantial equivalency, and it also added a few other things that ended up being beneficial to us, which is, uh, all, it, it kind of says something, all of which needs to result in a sound basic education. And I'm sure your listeners are more educated than anyone on what that means, um, and it's a pretty high bar. So, so sound basic so, education was it, were terms that were fostered in the CFE lawsuit about education in the public schools in New York City. And there right. was a, a judicial decision that that meant more than an eighth grade education. So it's a it's a pretty rigorous standard, actually. Right, right, exactly. And um, it also had some other kind of words where it kind of like left it up to the commissioner to make the ultimate decision as to you know what to look for, what substantial equivalency is. So so this happened in March slash April when the budget was signed of 2018. Several months later, we did file a lawsuit. In July, we filed a lawsuit um, because we believe the law is unconstitutional. Whether you know it ends up being beneficial or not, the reality is it was written in a way to benefit one subset of a religious group, um, and and it entangles the state in in the religious matter. So we filed a lawsuit, um, but but we filed on our own behalf, meaning Yafet as an organization was the plaintiff. Um, so, so we filed the lawsuit in July. Then in, in August, New York City, so this is 
uh, three years into the investigation, New York City uh, released their first update on the investigation, in, in which they basically said, it was written in the form of a letter from the new chancellor, Carranza, to the commissioner at the time, Mary Ellen Ilya. And the letter basically said that, um, you know, we've reviewed this complaint. Um, it was for 39 yeshivas. They eliminated nine yeshivas. Um, so they limited it to 30 of them. And they said 15, half of them, would not even let us in. The other half, they basically corroborated what we've been saying, which is that there was very little secular education, um, uh, you know, little subjects and so forth. So shortly after, um, in November, there was an election, of course, Democrats took control, but then a little bit later, New York State finally released their updated guidelines. Those guidelines, if implemented, would have been uh, would have worked in our favor, meaning it would have for the first time implemented a serious enforcement mechanism of this century old law of substantial equivalency um, and shortly after the court actually dismissed our case in part by pointing to these new guidelines and saying, look, you thought the Felder amend Amendment is causing you harm, but the way the State Education Department is interpreting it, um, it's clearly not a problem for you. So that's kind of like where, you know, that was left off. That being said, not long after, the yeshivas, and then with a the boost from the Catholic schools and private elite schools, primarily a, an accreditation agency called NYSACE, New York State Association for Independent Schools, they filed uh, independent but, uh, you know, coordinated lawsuits to challenge those new guidelines. Um, they argued a lot of different things, including freedom of religion and free speech and all of that stuff. But they ended up prevailing on one thing, which is to argue that these are not really guidelines, they're really regulations. The difference being guidelines, the moment the commissioner releases them and decides to adopt them, they go into effect. And in fact, for the few months that the guidelines were, were out there, New York State Education Department was already implementing it. In fact, New York City, from what I understand, you know, was seeking to hire people specifically to comply and to work within that framework. But the, when it comes to regulations, it requires a 60-day public comment period and followed by a vote by the Board of Regents. Mm -hmm. and, and that's ultimately what the judge agreed, that it's, in fact, regulations. So in April, it was shot down. In late May or early June, the State Education Department re-released them as regulations, opened it up for public comment, and that public comment period went from July to September. The yeshiva leaders, and again with those other partners, submitted a ton of comments in opposition of the regulations, um, something like 140,000 comments opposing these uh, regulations. And the challenge with that is, that even though most or if not all are pretty much identical comments saying, hey, we don't want the regulations because we want to be able to teach whatever we want, the reality is SED by law is required to review all the comments and they're supposed to respond in some form as well. That means that the yeshiva leaders just won another few months of delay in their battle. And instead of it coming up for a vote in the October Regents meeting, here we are approaching December and it still hasn't uh, come up for a vote. So, so how can people help you uh, support your efforts on these issues um, if they want to have some input as to how strongly the city and the state will be providing proper oversight over the yeshivas? 
Great. I think the, the first step is for people to just be more familiar with the issue. Um, I need people to understand how it's affecting both the children in these yeshivas as well as how it's affecting the, you know, the city at large or the state. Um, the ultra-Orthodox, I mean, civilly the Hasidic community is one of the poorest in the state, but even in the country. There are two Hasidic enclaves in, in New York, one in Rockland called New Square and one in Orange County called Kiris Joe. They were named the two poorest villages in the entire country, respect, you know, respectively. Um, and, and, and as you've mentioned, this is also the fastest growing population. So this is affecting, you know, all taxpayers. Um, dependence on government assistance is kind of like the way of life because of the reality is graduates come out of these schools and they're simply not able to, you know, earn a living, um, which is understandable, but it's a problem that can easily be resolved that shouldn't have happened in the first place. So people need to learn about this. They can learn more information on our website at www.yaffed.org forward slash report where we give kind of a whole breakdown explaining the nuances of what is the community we're talking about. A lot of people will approach me and tell me, hey, you know, I've heard your story. It sounds interesting, but uh, there's yeshiva, you know, a few blocks from where I live, and they really look, it looks like they're giving a real education. So I ask a few questions. Where do you live? Oh, Riverdale. Um, okay, it's likely not a Hasidic yeshiva, you know, and, and and we have to go into that kind of detail. So, and and whenever I can, I I do, you know. But it's it's important for people to understand the differences. There's ultra orthodox, there's modern orthodox. The two are like vastly different. And within ultra orthodoxy, there are two main groups: the uh, Litvish or yeshivish or black hat, often referred to, versus the Hasidish, which are kind of like the more right wing. Um, where where the problem mainly exists. So uh, this is one example, but the report outlines the various sources of funding going to non-public schools and depends on government assistance and the mayor's reactions, the, the connections, the political connections and so forth. So I think it's very important for people to become very familiar and then find avenues to to speak out about it and to demand programming on it, whether they attend a synagogue or something else. They should ask to hear from us um, or people from, you know, the same background so that their peers can also learn about it. They should learn, uh, they should follow us on social media and engage. Um, oftentimes we have, you know, actions such as signing petitions, submitting public comment. Um, there may be a second round of public comment if the, if SED makes significant changes to the existing proposed regulations. So, you know, there are many ways for people to be involved. To give you another example, a few months ago, yeshiva leaders, through their connections, got as many as, I believe, 31 New York City council members to oppose these regulations. Can you imagine that? Including some real progressives who who believe in every child getting an education and all of that, at least pay lip service to it, but then they signed on to that letter. Those Those elected officials truly need to be held accountable, at the very least be confronted by their constituents. Why on earth would you do that? Is it all for politics? So, um, and, of course, the mayor himself, you know, he's uh, he's out there, you know, pretending he's the best thing that's ever happened to humanity. And he's clearly been dragging out this investigation for now more than four years. There's literally there was a story this past yeah, let's um, wait, Saturday. Let's wait on that. Let's wait on that. I, I, wanted, sure, okay, I just okay. want to um, make sure that our listeners know um, that we want to open up the phone lines now. 
and uh, we want you to call in with your questions or concerns relating to this issue in particular. The number is 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. Before I interrupted him rudely, um, Naftuli was uh, talking about a story in the New York Post that appeared this weekend by Sue Edelman um, about a whistleblower who sent a letter to three council members alleging that the city hall had blocked investigations into three issues, one of them relating to the DOE review of yeshivas, um, and went into some detail about the fact that the Department of Investigation had, at the time, Mark Peters confirmed in October 2018 that his office was in the process of investigating um, the alleged interference of City Hall into the DOE review of yeshivas. But shortly after that, Peters was fired by the mayor, and um, the uh, uh, special investigator of schools was taken out of that office. And um, the new article in the New York Post said um, the special investigator for schools is delaying or has been slow walking their investigation into um, that whether the DOE has been stopped from doing a fuller, more rigorous investigation of yeshivas for political reasons. Again, these are allegations. We don't know whether they're true, but um, it, it was reported that this letter went out to three different council members in August. Can you explain a little bit, because, a lot, uh, again, people don't really understand why it is that all these other council members would write a letter in support of the yeshivas, why the mayor um, might be um, um, motivated to block uh, a thorough investigation of their uh, of the yeshiva's educational qu- uh, quality, why it is that um, they seem to have so much political influence. Great. Um, as you know, when it comes to, for instance, a, a citywide primary um, the Hasidic community alone has a, a large block vote that can easily sway an election. So, for instance, take the, I believe, 2012 or 2013 mayoral uh, primary elections. Um, it was, I believe, divided by, I don't know what, five or ten <laughs> different candidates. And then, you know, so when you have, um, you know, when you wield the power of, I don't know, 10,000 or 20,000 votes um, citywide, you can easily... Um, Sway the election, which means that you have a lot of political clout. And we know, for instance, at the time, Mayor de Blasio uh, promised to, for instance, do away with uh, ritual um, to a requirement about around the ritual called Metzitz um which Mayor Bloomberg had implemented a requirement to sign a waiver. De Blasio said, "No worries, I'll do away with it." And in fact, he did. Um, but look, de Blasio's kind of pandering um, literally paid off. Remember, he started off as a local community, um, you know, leader in um, in that area of Brooklyn. Then he became a council member um, representing this community, and then he was propelled to become the public advocate and then the mayor. So many elected officials looking at his uh, path, um, even if they don't represent ultra-Orthodox people, take someone like Mark Levine, right, um, from, I believe, the Upper West Side. He's 
signed on to these letters too, and um, you know he's not known to to believe in children not getting an education. But if he wants to, you know, pursue something citywide, uh, he knows that it would be a bad idea to essentially upset this black vote. So this is kind of the the challenge we're facing. Um, you know, we we really depend on people doing the right thing, despite of potential political consequences, because we understand that the at the moment. The political cloud is there. Okay, I think we have a caller. Um, this is WBAI. You're on the air. Can you say your name and where you're Hello? from? Can you? Yeah, hi. Can you say your name and where you're from? And what is your question to Naftuli? Hello? Are you there? They dropped off. Okay. Um, no problem. While we're naming names of some of the people who have been in support of the yeshivas for whatever reason... Um, or, or you know, their 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 political fight to keep um, um, a less than adequate um, education to ultra orthodox kids. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the people who have stood up for the right of these children to receive an adequate education. Can you mention some of the heroes of this struggle aside from you? Sure. Unfortunately, there aren't that many. Um, as I remember Norman Siegel used to say, you know, this is like a hot potato, um, you know, when it comes to politics. Um, we know that Daniel Drum, for instance, has spoken out, uh, you know, many times in favor while he was chair of the Education Committee and and beyond that. Um, I know in private some who've been supportive. I could tell you, you know, Mark Traeger, for instance, the current chair, has been supportive in private, but... Um, he hasn't taken a public position, um, which would which is sorely needed. Um, uh, I believe Senator that, Robert. Yeah, I was going to mention Senator Robert Jackson, one of my heroes. Sure, Senator Robert Jackson is is a strong supporter. He's come to our press conference and spoken very very strongly um, about the need. And and he still, if I remember correctly, he still has seen it playing out in the city council, and now kind of seeing that. Oh wow. You know, all this time has passed and it still hasn't been resolved. So he sees, you know, that there's a big problem here. Um, and then, you know, we recently formed a, a council, you know, a rabbinical council. So, you know, we're slowly gaining some traction in the broader Jewish community, which, although this isn't necessarily directly impacting them, um, certainly not at the moment, it's it's a, still a Jewish um, value to, to do the right thing to, you know, Tikkun Olam, repair the world, um, and really kind of to care for our brothers and sisters. Um, so there have been, you know, an increase of support from there. But um, it's still very much, you know, grassroots, mostly consisting of just yeshiva graduates and parents, many of which are kind of in the closet, so to speak, who can't support us publicly, but in whatever way they can, they provide us with information, documentations um, that help us, you know, make the case for, you know, why there needs to be improvement. We have another caller. Um, this is WBAI. You're on the air. Uh, can you say your name and where you're from and what your question is to Naftuli? Good morning. It's Michael from Clinton Hill. Hi, Michael. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm curious, is the is the poverty caused by the amount of children that, that, that families have? Like you said, you're one of 17. It's a good question. Um, thank you for that. It's hard to really parse out where the poverty is coming from. Um, it seems that it's probably a combination. 
Um, I do believe that there's some data out there that uh, demonstrates that it's not really about the number of children. Um, that That is kind of how the government would decide or determines someone's um, whether someone qualifies for certain benefits, right? So like the, the income and the number of dependents. But for instance, the study about that, that demonstrated that New Square in Rockland County is the poorest in the country was actually based on uh, income, purely on income. Um, and that doesn't have anything to do with the number of children. So we have another caller. Um, can you say your name and where you're from and what your question to Nat yeah, is? Hello? Hello? Yes. Hi. Can you say your name and where you're from and what your question is? Okay. My name is Alan Levin. I, I'm from Fairlawn, New Jersey, but I work in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, uh, great. I have a, I, I, quite frankly, I have a problem with you, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I agree with everything you said about education. I've, having seen the Hasidic and Haredi communities, it's a problem. But, uh, number one, by the way, uh, you, you, you are com- confrontational with organizations which in the long run may be useful in solving the problem. But you've and such. And quite frankly, you also have a, a rabbinic council which consists of 80% of the people on it are not Orthodox. And you, you, uh, this has to be a problem which has to be solved within the Orthodox community. Okay, can you, uh, you let me truly re- respond? Because, because you're dealing with highly insular, insular communities who are not going to respond very well there's something they believe is being forced down their throats by people who are hostile toward them. Okay, Neftuli, how do you respond? Great. Um, so first of all, the assumption that change would come from within has been debunked in many different ways. Um, I'll give you an example. Just the other day, there was this uh, woman who had launched a, a volunteer ambulance corps um, by women, for women, um, within the community um, who's faced a lot of opposition. This is the same woman who the community took so much pride in as having become a judge in New York um, and kind of used her as a prop to claim that the education is so wonderful, even though we know that the education for women tends to be better. But anytime you know, something new, they, you know, they want to do something new, um, they face a lot of opposition. Um, we have other reasons to, to believe why change can't come from within. Parents who want to speak up face um, a lot of opposition and are automatically kind of looked down upon and they face ostracization and the kids could be thrown out. So it's very, very difficult for change to come um, from within on this front. And to the contrary, what I would argue is if, um, let's say, you had a street where People were driving, you know, recklessly and everything. Uh, yeah, you can organize the local community to, to post signs and everything, but the first thing you would actually do is call the authorities who are supposed to enforce the speed limit. Here we have a situation where the law was blatantly being violated, um, and we didn't really see it as having an issue directly with the yeshivas, but rather with those who were supposed to enforce it. That's why we filed the complaint. In fact, when we first uh, filed the complaint in 2015, um, we asked the city not to disclose the names of the yeshivas because the point wasn't to shame them or to attack them. It was really to attack the city for failing to enforce it. And I think it's common sense that when an agency is failing to do their job, that that's where we would start. Of course, I think change should also come from within. Uh, we invite, you know, inside groups to, to rally in support of the cause. I will tell you we've made some efforts. Um, one of the first things I've done was approach um, Orthodox leaders, including some that are currently opposing us, but I've asked them to, to bring the change from within. Uh, look at the poverty numbers. Look at everything. Look at the law. 
and they simply refused. So it's ultimately we got to make change happen. The argument that um, they won't respond well, I don't, I don't know if I agree. I'll tell you, for instance, in London, in Montreal, in Belgium, the government um, is a lot uh, uh, stricter, if you will, with enforcing it, and the yeshivas uh, are complying much more than they are here. The difference is purely in terms of how far the government is willing to go there versus here. And I just want to point out that there are lots and lots of former yeshiva students that have right. bravely and courageously come out and written op-eds and essays for various publications, have been interviewed on television and radio. So it's not that um, Naftuli is the only one. There, mm-hmm. there, he has a, a very strong supportive community right. that that are under attack and that Naftuli himself has been under attack and has had gotten death threats. So it takes a lot of courage to do this, and he's done it, and so have others. And so I really don't think he can be blamed for for not reaching out to that um, ultra-Orthodox community. We have another mm-hmm. um, caller on the air. Um, can you say your name and where you're from? You're on WBAI. Is that me? Yes, it's you. Yes, this is Yaakov from Williamsburg. Hi, Yaakov. Hi, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I tuned in. Just after you started, what's the guest's name? Naftuli Moster. He's the head of Yafed, which is fighting for yes. for an adequate... Yes, I, I, I heard the basic, so I just missed the name. Okay, Naftuli, um, I'm coming from a, like a different way of going through this. I, I became like a, what you call a bell when I was 24. I'm now in my 70s. I actually, I live next door to Sadna. And, uh, and I have a, a very extensive, uh, uh, psychological, my parents are Ivy League and I have three professional licenses from the Federal Communications Commission, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, I have a, 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 a question. Have you been threatened as being a Moser or attacked personally because of what you're doing? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I have been called a Moser many times. Um, Can but, you explain what that um, means? To those of us yeah, Moser is like a Hebrew term that refers to someone who is um, snitching um, to the authorities, um, which you're not supposed to, because, again, you're supposed to resolve things from within. But, of course, this happens even, for instance, as you might be familiar with the two Sotmer rabbis fighting over, you know, land and other things in, in Williamsburg. They've also gone to the authorities. So that's kind of like something that's only thrown out whenever it's convenient. Um, but I should mention, there's actually a term that's worse than Moser, and that is called Rodef. Rodef means someone who is pursuing you to kill you. And that, the, um, according to Jewish law, if someone is a Rodef, you're supposed to stop them by any means necessary, including by, by killing them. And there's a, an Orthodox newspaper, one of the most widely read ones, called Hamodia, that did a whole story where they refer to us as uh, Rodef. And I think that's very dangerous. To give you an example, um, the prime minister in Israel, um, Yitzhak Rabin, that was assassinated, it was shortly after certain uh, right-wing rabbis began referring to him as a rodef. Um, so it's kind of dangerous because you could always, there's always one, um, you know, hothead or something who, who takes matters into their own hands and can do something. So it's certainly uh, dangerous, and I've, I've gotten all kinds of um, threats and, and nasty things said about me. But, you know, this isn't, this isn't really about me, um, and I can kind of manage, um, you know, with a little bit of extra caution and surveillance cameras and all of that stuff. But um, it's really, this is a much, much bigger issue than myself. We're literally talking about tens of thousands of children 
suffering extreme educational neglect right here in New York State, um, about at least 50,000, I would say, um, because we're limiting it just to Hasidic boys, right? But if you expand it a little bit, it's actually much more than that. And again, the projections are that, for instance, by 2030, 30% of Brooklyn's youth alone will be Hasidic. Um, and, and again, that does include the uh, girls, too, uh, but it doesn't include other ultra-Orthodox communities. So the point is this is a serious, growing um, concern beyond, you know, the little threats that I'm facing. Naftali, Naftali. And I ask you a question. You appear to be very well-spoken and highly educated and have many facts at your fingertips. What ultimately did you get an education to be? Sorry, what was that final question? What, what was your education? I'm saying I'm impressed by you. are so well-spoken and have so many facts at your fingertips. Did you become an attorney ultimately? What do you do now? <laughs> Okay, no, but I, I ended up um, becoming a social worker, um, and I should mention that was actually a, um, I don't know, call it a downgrade, or I'm trying to find the right word, um, but basically um, a compromise or whatever. Basically, I had always wanted to become a psychologist. I got a bachelor's degree in psychology, but ultimately I knew that in order to get into any decent school and to do well in, in grad school, I need to pass or do well on GRE exams which are based on a lot of early knowledge. What people don't realize is um, we can make up for it to some extent. Um, what, you know, when I speak on the phone or in general, um, I, use, I try to use easier words that are kind of on my frontal lobe versus you know, the, the more fancier words that uh, you know, I would have liked to use or that you probably use in conversation. Um, but, but, when, but the reality is it, still, it takes us longer to process information that to most you know, people, it comes naturally or, you know, because they've kind of grown up with it. So, so for instance, in, any... You do, you do incredibly well, Naftuli. Unfortunately, <laughs> we're, we're coming, we're running out of time here. Um, I think that everybody should go to yafed.org to look at the information there and also donate to this organization, which is doing such an amazing job in, in fighting for all these thousands of undereducated youth. Um, this is Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM. We want to thank Naftuli for being on our show and for the fight he's engaged in. And we hope that you'll join us next week, um, next Wednesday, December 4th at 10 a.m., where we'll be talking with Diane Ravitch, um, both about presidential politics as it relates to public schools and also her new book about the battle against privatization and corporate reform, called Staying Goliath. And if you like the show, don't forget to sign up online as a WBAI buddy for Talk Out of School. And thank you so much for listening in. We really appreciate it. You finally lay your burden down. Close up your books, get out of your seat. into the slot You gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to toe